Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m. And you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. When the Hebrew people first arrived in Egypt, they were nothing more than a large family. But they were revered, most notably because of Joseph. Through a daunting series of circumstances, Joseph responded with integrity and with faithfulness to God, and God blessed him as he rose from slavery, false accusations, and incarceration to become Pharaoh's right-hand man. Joseph was a fully devoted follower of God. Now, more than 400 years later, we read in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increasing in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. This family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph have become slaves in Egypt. But God is ready to act on behalf of these his chosen people. And in Exodus chapter 7 through 11, God unleashes 10 highly selective pandemics in Egypt to accomplish two purposes. First, to reveal to the Hebrew people that he hears their cries and he sees their slavery and has come to do something about it. He has come to set them free and to lead them to the land promised to Abraham. And second, to reveal to the Egyptians, and especially Pharaoh, that he alone is God Almighty, and that his people, the Jews, will be freed from Egypt's enslavement. Listen to how an eight-year-old boy describes what happens. Tommy was telling his parents at Sunday lunch what he had learned in Christian formation class that morning. He was so excited telling them how Moses had organized all the Hebrews into a resistance group. Listen to what he said. They planned really carefully and finally broke loose from their Egyptian slave masters. They moved as fast as they could toward the land called Canaan. They drove every kind of vehicle they could get hold of, jeeps, half-tracks, 18-wheelers, everything. But Pharaoh's army wouldn't quit. They tracked down the Hebrews with radar. They exploded missiles all around them and shot them from jet planes in the sky. When Moses and his people reached the Red Sea, they thought they were finished. There was raging water in front of them and Egyptians behind them. Suddenly, the Corps of Engineers came to the rescue and built a pontoon bridge over the Red Sea, and all the Hebrews crossed over to freedom. Then, just as Pharaoh's forces were about to go across the bridge, the Hebrews blew it up with dynamite and saved everyone. What a great class. Well, Tommy's parents were more than a little concerned about his overactive imagination. Finally, Tommy's father asked him, Is that really what they told you in class this morning? Tommy was silent for a moment and then said, Well, not exactly. But if I told you what they told me, you'd never believe me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to believe it, to believe what you did for these people of yours, 
And please give us the perspective we need to learn from it. You not only have a story to teach us, but a lesson for us to learn. Help us not only to hear what you say, but also to do what you wish. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Listen now to what happens following the ten plagues as recorded for us in the book of Exodus and read for us by Ali. Exodus 13, verses 17 through 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Ethan on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Allie. God knows his people. He knows that they are easily swayed to abandon his plan for them. So God does not lead them into the land of the Philistines, a warrior tribe located along the coast of the Mediterranean. But what the people do not know is that God is leading them to a spot that will seem hopeless. The sea on one side and Pharaoh's chariot army pursuing them on the other. But God not only leads, God intervenes. What Tommy told his parents is not what really happened. But what did happen ended the pursuit of the Egyptians and allowed the Hebrew people to continue their journey toward the promised land. God leads and God often intervenes. Our best place in life is always where we follow God's lead. This morning, I want to ask us to consider an essential position for us to have in order to follow God's lead in our lives. That essential position, perspective. The Hebrew or Jewish people had perspective. They knew slavery. They had known slavery all their lives in Egypt. They did not know freedom. They knew about the God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They also knew the many gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh, who declared himself to be a god. They had experienced the act of circumcision, which marked the men for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they had personal experience of God intervening for them, the plagues, that had just set them free. And God protected them to get through the sea on dry ground. And God was miraculously victorious over Pharaoh's chariot army. Yet despite this perspective, these experiences, this personal experience of God in their midst, the Jewish people had great difficulties following God as they journeyed through the wilderness, leading them to the promised land of Canaan. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in his perspective 
for the Jewish people in his letter to the young church in Rome. It'll be read for us by Maurice. The verse is Romans 2.28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by written code. Such a person's praise is not from the other people, but from God. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or a value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with every word of God. Thank you, Maurice. I have already mentioned the perspective the Jewish people had on the safe side of the sea. They had God as their leader. They had Moses and Aaron as God's spokesman. And they had witnessed the plagues and now the destruction of the chariot army of Pharaoh by God. But let me put into perspective what they did not have. They did not have the scriptures. The scriptures had not yet been written. They did not have the Ten Commandments. They would be given to them shortly. They did not have the tabernacle, the place of worship. That would come prior to entering the promised land. They did not have the judges, nor the prophets, nor the kings. They did not have the Savior, Jesus Christ. They did not have the Holy Spirit in the way that Jesus gives him. They did not have the church, the body of Jesus Christ, and the worldwide inclusion of followers. They did not have the same perspective that we have. Perspective can come in a couple of ways. One way to get perspective is by elevation. I was leading a cross-country backpacking trip in the wilderness area of Yosemite National Park many years ago. I was teaching orienteering with the use of a compass, a relief map, and the perspective of the horizon, or what we called target points. As we trekked, we arrived at a point where there was an old-growth forest that had suffered from a severe thunderstorm or at least a downblast of strong wind a few years earlier. Fallen trees were everywhere. We had to bushwhack through what ended up being about three miles of very rough terrain. We lost sight of any horizon line, so we worked the compass every 50 yards or so to stay on course. What we needed was perspective. One of the older high school boys was a nature animal. He proceeded to climb the biggest tree still standing with a relief map and a compass in his pocket. He got high enough to find a distant peak and get a reading for us. He got us back on track by giving us perspective. Another way to get perspective is by time. Consider what seemed important for you when you were a child. Now, after many life experiences, and years of aging, have those important things from our childhood changed? Time can give perspective. Or consider your perspective on life during these shelter-in-place or mask-shield-glove PPE days. What is important to you today that was not nearly as important six months ago? How has your perspective changed even over a short period of time? 
In his letter to the church, to the Roman church, Paul revealed the advantage of being a Jew, and he was right. They had advantages. For the remainder of this sermon, I want to reveal five advantages we have as Christians. Number one, we have Jesus, the Savior, the Word of God, God's full expression of himself. Jesus, the Redeemer who came not to judge or condemn, but to rescue. John 3, 16 and 17. Jesus, who says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. John 10, verse 10. Jesus, with one new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. John 13, 34. I remember a conversation from several years ago that I had with a relatively new person to the church I was serving. He remarked about how much he enjoyed coming, how friendly the people were, and how inspiring the services had been for him. But he had a problem with the church. He said, and I quote him, there's just too much Jesus, end of quote. I was stunned. I had never heard anything like that before. After a very awkward pause, I finally spoke. But that's the message of God for us. It is all about Jesus. Jesus said it himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. It's all about Jesus. He walked away. I stood there, still stunned, and remained silent. Two months later, I was privileged to pray with him to receive Jesus as his Savior and as his Lord. And at his baptism that followed, without any coaching, he declared, and again I quote him, it's all about Jesus, end quote. Hallelujah, it is all about Jesus. Number two, we have the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the advocate. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life, Acts 4, 31. The Holy Spirit reproduces the character of Jesus in us. We call it the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus, what he did, what he said, how he lived. John 14, 26. Jesus described the Holy Spirit as counselor. What a helpful term that is. In high school, there are guidance counselors that help students decide and navigate toward the military or trade school or junior college or college following graduation. For problems in marriage, there are counselors that help uncover underlying issues to be addressed in a new way in order to rekindle the relationship of marriage. For our careers, there are counselors that help us navigate career changes as the job scene changes. The Holy Spirit helps us navigate life, and most particularly, our life as Christians following Christ. Number three, we have the complete Bible, the handbook of our faith, what we teach and how we live. It is God's story of love through his son Jesus, 1 John 4.10. The Bible is God-breathed, that is, it is life-giving, 2 Timothy 3.16, Part A. And the Bible teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16, Part B. I was a sophomore in college, pre-med major, when God called me to be a minister of his gospel. I'd been a Christian for barely two years when I was called. I was excited, and I was scared. Within that week, God opened the Bible for me to a text that has become my life verse, 
2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself to be approved by God, a workman with no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I love to study the Bible. I love to teach and preach the Bible. I am so grateful that God has given us his book that leads us to life in Jesus and love for people. What a gift the Bible is. Number four, we have the church. The church, the family of faith. Built on the bedrock of personal faith in Jesus Christ, Matthew 16, 13 to 18. The church, a place of healing prayers, James 5, 14. The church, the body of which Jesus is the head, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. And in these days of sheltering in place without connection to church except by the internet or mail, we see how important and meaningful it is to gather as Jesus' followers, to worship, to encourage, to learn, and to grow together face to face. That day is coming. I trust it is relatively soon. And number five, we have heaven, our true and eternal home. Heaven, which is the home of God, Psalm 103, 19, and 123, 1. Heaven, the names of the redeemed are written there, Luke 10, verse 20. And Jesus returns from heaven to take his redeemed people to live with him there forever. John 14, 1 through 3. None of the Hebrew people had ever been to the promised land. They had just heard about it. The land flowing with milk and honey. The land God promised to Abram and his descendants forever. The challenge for them was to recognize that Egypt was not their home. Canaan, the promised land, was. They were not leaving home, they were going home. This perspective of their home is essential for them to follow God as he leads them home. None of us have ever been to heaven, but we've heard about it, the place where God is. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, where Jesus is making a place for us and all who believe in him. The challenge for us is to recognize that this world is not our home. Heaven is. When we die, we are not leaving home. We are going home. The perspective of our true home is essential for us as we follow God as he leads us home. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, elevate our thinking and our believing so that we might have your perspective. Help us remember how you've led us, intervened for us, forgiven us, and been transforming us. Give us a passion for Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Bible and your church and the home you've made for us in heaven. Give us a fervor for reaching out to others so that they may come to know you, your Son, your Holy Spirit, and your heavenly plan for them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In confidence, I say to you, God is with you. He's at home with you as you shelter in place. He's with your family, both near and far. He's with you as you mask and PPE for your work on the front lines. God is with you. Listen to him. Choose to follow him. You will not be disappointed. His long-term goal is to take us home. Bless you.